Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our shortwave transmitter has been temporarily disabled. We will inform you as soon as our shortwave broadcast is restored. Stay tuned to Channel Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Amanda Machaga, Tabiso Luhoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Russia accused of meddling in the electoral process in Madagascar, and South Africa's ruling ANC election candidate list could change. In economics news, World Bank cuts sub-Saharan Africa's growth forecast, and in sports news, Football great Pele has been released from hospital. But first up, the news with Amanda Machaka. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning. Sudanese security forces have again fired tear gas at thousands of anti-government protesters demonstrating outside the army headquarters in the capital Khartoum. Protesters are demanding President Omar al-Bashir resignation. Protests erupted across Sudan in December, demanding that the army either take the side of the people or the country's leader. Meanwhile, the United States says it supports the efforts of Sudanese people in seeking the ouster of the current political establishment, especially given the peaceful and resilient nature of their demand. The U.S. also cautioned the Sudanese government against the use of force on protesters, especially those engaged in a three-day sit-in protest around the army headquarters in the capital Khartoum. These sit-ins are the latest installment of efforts by activists and citizens to force President Omar al-Bashir out of office. Al-Bashir has been in power for three decades ahead of polls expected for 2020. At the same time, Eritrea has issued a security alert to its citizens in Sudan. According to a statement issued by the Eritrean embassy, citizens in Sudan and those traveling to the country are advised to limit their movements and take extra precaution. The common border between the two neighbors was reopened only in February this year. At a time, nationwide protests were piling pressure on President Omar al-Bashir's government. Addressing a crowd of supporters during a visit to the Kesala provincial capital near the border with Eritrea. Al-Bashir said he was reaching out to Eritreans he called brothers. Sudan closed the border in early January 2018 after Al-Bashir announced a six-month state of emergency in the regions of Kasala and North Kudufan to help combat arms and food trafficking. Israelis have begun voting in the country's most closely fought general election in years. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, leader of the right-wing Likud party, is seeking a fifth term in office but is facing corruption allegations and a strong challenge from retired General Benny Gantz. Gantz, head of the centrist Blue and White Alliance, as promising cleaner politics. The BBC's Liz Doucet reports. 
The thing is about Israeli politics, one Israeli party has never governed on its own in the 120-seat Knesset. It's always been a matter of a coalition. So the big question now is, first, who will win? Will it be Benny Gantz? Or will it be Benjamin Netanyahu with the largest number of seats with their Likud or their Blue and White Alliance? And then who stands the better chance of cobbling together all those small parties which are running in order to form a governing coalition? So it's very much a two-part process. And finally, some eight months since the Ebola outbreak hit the Democratic Republic of Congo, it seems the end of the epidemic is not in sight. This is the second deadliest Ebola outbreak ever recorded. The worst outbreak was the 2013-2016 to epidemic in West Africa, which is believed to have claimed the lives of more than 11,000 people. Tariq Saravish is from the World Health Organization. Well, according to the latest figures from the Ministry of Health of Democratic Republic of the Congo, we uh, have uh, 1,146 cases of Ebola, including 721 deaths. These numbers uh, are really tragic because uh, it is uh, another layer of suffering uh, that has been uh, thrown upon the communities in North Kivu in this part of the DR Congo that already is experiencing uh, uh, active conflict. For Channel Africa News, I'm Amanda Machaka. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. South Africa's ruling ANC head of election campaigns, Figilem Balula, says the party's national and provincial candidate list could change subject to a decision by its integrity committee. Balula was addressing the media at the launch of the ANC's 30-day countdown to the May 8th elections in Johannesburg yesterday. So far, objections have been lodged against 30 ANC members appearing on the list. But as Ndebo Mokobo reports, Balula says changes on the list are not aimed at victimizing any party member. The ANC has received objections to 53 candidates across nine political parties, and at least 30 of them have been laid against some ANC members. On Tuesday, the electoral body will formally announce its decision on the various objections received. The ANC head of campaigns, Vicky Mbalula, says they have listened to people when they say their public representatives must reflect the spirit of renewal and integrity. He says the names contained in their list are not cast in stone, insisting that they will be changed depending on what the Integrity Committee says. We are signed in public positions because the ANC have sent us on behalf of the people of South Africa. If the ANC says step aside, not negotiable, you have to step aside. And that will apply to any other individual in the list of the African National Congress. What we will not do is to shy away from issues that are raised that have got implications for integrity for the ANC. But what we will not do, we will not victimize people. 
We said to you that the list is not cast in stone. The people who are in the list are not in contravention of the electoral law. But we, however, have got to address the issues of integrity. Hence, we agreed that the list will go to the Integrity Commission. Although the ANC is relying on the Integrity Commission to help put its list issue to rest, it currently functions without any official terms of reference. There are also fears that the decision it makes will be open to litigation. Figile Mbalula again. The Integrity Commission has got powers, as agreed in Nazareth. Terms of reference is important. It is less than a year that the Integrity Commission's powers have been reviewed and revamped by Nazareth Conference. They can act. They can recommend and so on. Terms of reference are being processed and the NEC will adopt it because it included in the terms of reference that the Integrity Commission must act by guidance of the NWC and the NEC. And the amendment is around that. The ANC head of campaigns also dismissed suggestions that President Cyril Ramaphosa is a lone campaigner with no one from the National Executive Committee helping him during his campaign trail throughout the country. If you say the president is a loner, what do you mean? Because the president is the face of the ANC campaign. And uh, the media is interested in the face. What the face of the campaign says, like all other leaders of other political parties. Look at our campaign. It is all over the country. Through its membership, volunteers, and led by President Ramaphosa. President Ramaphosa is the leader of the campaign. Meanwhile, the governing party has also launched the party's 30-day countdown to election, which will culminate in the Siangoba rally at the Ellis Park Stadium on the 5th of May. Election campaign will culminate in the hosting of the Siangoba rally on the 5th of May 2019. The rally will be held at the Ellis Park Stadium precinct, which includes the Johannesburg Stadium, with a combined capacity of approximately 140,000 people expected. The Siangoba rally is our final call to vote and a moment for the president to remind South Africans why they should jealously safeguard the gains of our freedom by exercising their right to vote and vote ANC to grow South Africa to new heights. Mbarula also said the ANC president will visit Alexandra Township on Thursday to address the protesting community after their failed attempts to get the attention of Jobek Mayor Herman Mashaba. I am Tebomokobe in Johannesburg. It's exactly four weeks to go before the much-anticipated elections and the election fever has gone viral in the northwest provincial capital, Mahiking. Residents who have registered to vote say they are more than ready to make their vote count. Mpo Lipedi reports. 29 political parties will be contesting the elections in the northwest. They all have signed the IEC Electoral Code of Conduct in a show of good faith ahead of what is expected to be a hotly contested election. IEC Provincial Electoral Officer Dr. Dumelon Tletiba says they are more than ready for the May 8th elections. We are well prepared in the province. We are happy with the level of preparation. We have secured all our 1,733 stations, three official mobile stations in the Kahisano Molopo area, because we really would love to have all our 1,733 stations open on the day of the elections in particular, but also for special voting days. Those who have registered to vote in this part of the country say their vote will be their voice. It's for the first time I participate in the election just because I want to see change in my, in my region, also at the campus. It's for the first time. That's why in May 
I want to vote it because I want to see the changes in my game. If you don't vote, unemployment will be there and then corruption will always be there. So let's go and vote for our parties. 20 political parties will be battling out to win the hearts and minds of the people in the Northwest province come the 8th of May. Mpo Lepedi Mahigeng. Leader of South Africa's Democratic Alliance, Musimaimani, has slammed the ruling ANC, saying it has failed to take charge of border control in South Africa. Maimani says if the DA wins the elections, they will make sure that there's good diplomatic ties with neighboring countries. This in order to ensure the better movement of the people between the borders of the countries. Gonelo Lekafula reports from Fixburg. Maimani was in the Free State to garner support for the DA. His first stop was in Manyazen Lady Brand, east of Bloemfontein, as he embarked on his party's Kasitokasi elections campaign ahead of May the 8th general elections. Much has been stolen away from the people of the Free State, resulting in the fact that the people of the Free State don't have a job, the people of the Free State don't feel safe, the road infrastructure is collapsing, there are no delivery of services, and our call is that we need to bring a change in this province, so that ultimately we put a job in every home, make sure our citizens are protected, they have an honest and a professional police service. Maimani says there's a need for border control and stability. We would make sure that our borders are secure, capacitate our borders, and furthermore make sure that we give registration to all citizens and non-citizens. Because when people are registered, you can protect their rights, you can ensure that there's proper uh, policing and resource allocation. Because what's important is to know how many citizens you've got in the country and how do you protect them. Residents and supporters of the DA had this to say. We want to work and we want to go to the bus city to attain the better education. We want to work in government. I want to work in the municipality. I want to work there. Maybe I can be a PA. Youth people are not working so the crime is a little bit higher. It's always uh, continuing each and every day. Big challenge that we are facing now is water. We are expecting that DA will come with the, challenge, with the changes of uh, job uh, creations and uh, streets or water and something like that. Yeah. My money says they are ready to take the free state. I'm Konalola Khafola in Fixpec. Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective, can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa, a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. A BBC investigation has revealed that at least six candidates were offered money by Russians in the lead-up to last year's presidential elections in Madagascar. The presence of Russian political strategists with close ties to the Kremlin posing as tourists with the alleged aim of helping to control the tightly fought race has raised questions about whether democracy in the former French colony has been fatally compromised. The BBC's Gael Borgia reports from the capital Antananarivo. Madagascar, among the poorest countries in Africa, recently staged one of the most closely contested elections. The wealthy businessman Andradzwilm emerged as the winner, but clear signs of Russian meddling in the polls threatened to undermine democracy here. It's like 
they decided what we should do and we just had to do it, like to execute. Unzara Sammanana was the former campaign manager of one of six presidential candidates who the BBC has learned were offered money by Russian teams. I had the feeling that we were more like um, suppliers rather than, um, than, than can, a candidate campaign team. It started nearly a year before what was going to be a tightly fought race. Three Russian men, all carrying tourist visas, appeared in Madagascar, joined by prominent political strategists also from Russia. Among the candidates targeted for financial assistance was the influential Pastor Mayor, founder of the Church of the Apocalypse. They came to your office with a suitcase with millions? Yes, that's right in the case, but they also paid a deposit for the presidential election. But there were apparently strings attached. Yes, and they said they would draw up a document to sign. The document was actually a contract stating that the Russians were supporting a number of candidates. Whoever came first was expected to pull out and support the leading candidate. It seemed to be a way of future-proofing Russia's relationship with the continent it is increasingly developing military and commercial ties with. Here in Madagascar, laws on electoral funding are weak. Our investigation has established that the payment of candidates by Russians appears to have been a systematic and coordinated operation to exert control over a hotly contested election. So who exactly were these shady figures posing as tourists but seemingly flashing their cash? Video footage of the pastor with the Russian guests gives a clear review of their identities. Captured on camera is Andrei Kramar, who has strong political connections in Russia, Roman Pozdyakov, a businessman, and Vladimir Boyarishev, who has a history in the diamond trade. Do you think that they care about people in Madagascar and their choice? Not at all. BBC journalist Andrei Soshnikov has written extensively about them and knows some of the characters well. they just people who you can hire to do any job, even dirty job, job during the elections. Why would a group of Russians come to Madagascar? Uh, to support some candidates and to make a deal with uh, future governments. Further evidence of Russian interference has emerged with the staging of apparently fake anti-Western demonstrations in the capital Antananarive. People we spoke to told us they'd been paid to turn up. And the presence of a popular yet controversial figure from Benin to stir up the crowd called Kemi Seba appeared to mark an escalation in their campaign. It begs the question, who is bankrolling this murky operation? According to unconfirmed media reports, Yevgeny Prigozhin, a close ally of President Putin, is financing teams of Russian technical specialists in several African countries. Mr. Prigozhin has been indicted in the U.S. for alleged criminal interference in the 2016 presidential election, charges which he denies, along with influencing elections here in Madagascar. Shortly after he was sworn in as president, and while there is no suggestion that Mr. Hadzwelna has taken cash from Russia, 
many now question if democracy has been fatally compromised. And with further elections across Africa later this year, will the hidden hand of Russia be revealed once again? That report by the BBC's Gael Borgia in Madagascar's capital, Antanarivo. Research shows that purpose-led organizations consistently outperform their competitors. Learn more about how shared value thinking can take your business to new heights at the Africa Shared Value Summit from the 23rd to the 24th of May 2019 in Nairobi, Kenya. Learn more and book your ticket at AfricaSharedValueSummit.com today. Channel Africa is a proud media partner of Africa Shared Value Summit and will broadcast live from the summit. Make sure you don't miss on the broadcasts on the 23rd and the 24th of May 2019. Log on to www.channelafrica.co.za or DSTV Channel 802 for more on what will be transpiring at the summit. Channel Africa from an African perspective. Residents of Alexandra, north of Johannesburg, are intent on continuing with their protests until City of Johannesburg Mayor Herman Mashaba meets with them. Residents marched to Santon, where they refused to hand over their memorandum of grievances to the city manager. The march is a culmination of last week's protests, where residents are grieved over the mushrooming of illegal dwellings and other service delivery issues. Angela Bulwana reports. Alex's residents are refusing to speak to anyone from the city except the mayor. Last week they refused to talk to MMC Michael Soon and on Monday they refused to listen to city manager Ndivoniswani Lukwareni. One of the residents, Dumezueni Kulashe, says that this is because they feel disrespected by the mayor. He says they'll be intensifying their protest until Mashaba visits them. Uh, up to so far, it seems like the mayor is disrespecting the people of Alex and then now um, having to say that he's, he's got a piece of schedule. They say it's undermining the people's pleas in terms of for them to meet with him. So then now, as of now, it is up to the people themselves when you come back to Alex to see what you can do. Because of now, um, the very same blockade that we have done seems like we're going to intensify it. From now on, then that says it will be normal, a one-day situation. It will be the whole week or two weeks down the line. So then that says irrespective of whatever the situation, whatever that you should go into Alex will stop, be stopped. Children won't be going to school. That's the most unfortunate part. But then those who are going to work, then definitely the, 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 the economy will, will have to plunge down. The residents marched to Sentin Regional Offices of the city of Johannesburg. They said they would not leave until the mayor addressed them. Mashal was in Flakfontein where he was launching a housing project. The strong police contingent, however, made sure that the residents left Sentin before peak hour traffic. Alex shut down convenors and Dilema Vundla 
once again summed up their grievances. We'll be waiting for mayor. If it means that we must sleep here, we will sleep here. If it means that mayor come in the evening, we will sit until the evening. At the end of the day, people of Alexandra receive a proper service delivery. The people of Alexandra receive a proper development. The people of Alexandra uh, street are also clean. Everything must be done correctly. Both Premier David Makura and President Cyril Ramaphosa have committed to visiting the township on Thursday. This after the DA opened a police case against the ANC, accusing the political party of being behind the unrest in Alex. Mashaba has committed to visiting Alex on April 15. He is insisting that the problems in Alex are historic and has questioned what happened to the erstwhile Alexandra Renewal project with a budget exceeding a billion rand. And that report by Angela Bulana in Johannesburg. Now, since the protests, Mayor Herman Mashaba's party, the Democratic Alliance, which is the main opposition in the country, has accused the ruling ANC of orchestrating the protest ahead of the May 8th general elections. Gauteng Province Premier David Makura tweeted to say he'll be in Alexandra today, but his office is yet to confirm this. To talk to us more on this, we're now joined on the line by political analyst Thea Fenter. Thea, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. It's my pleasure. Now, Thea, what do you make of Mayor Herman Mashaba's handling of the Alexandra crisis? Well, let's first get two or three things out of the way. Um, we are facing national and provincial elections. But a long time ago, we've already saw that local government-related matters, such as bread and butter issues, service delivery issues, developmental issues that are all local government issues, are going to be elevated to the provincial and the national level uh, a political level. So Alexandra is a very good example where this is happening. It also happened in the several other local governments in the country where people did this. And they did this for the simple reason that the ears and eyes of politicians are extremely open and aware before elections. Um, uh, this is also called sometimes the silly season before an election. Um, people do a lot of things to either expose lack of development or um, uh, lack of interest by politicians, and now politicians are vulnerable. So this is the Alex design. Secondly, um, th- from the DA side, um, Mashaba, Herman Mashaba, the executive mayor of, of the Metropole, He wants the president and the premier to be involved as well for a very good reason, and that is to have all of them on a platform because this is a shared kind of responsibility. What happens in a place like Alexandra, and for those people not knowing, um, Alexandra every year when it rains, when you have these flash floods, are in trouble. Um, this informal settlement that later on developed into a larger place um, still have some areas where people live that I think people shouldn't live and um, at least services should be rendered in some way or another. That just doesn't happen. And I think this issue is now brought to the fore. So the people in Alexandra does have a case. There is no issue about it. And the politicians are now ready to listen. And um, in this, 
we we see the dynamic playing itself off that a local government issue is now elevated to national politics. Now, Theo, is uh, the executive mayor, Herman Mashaba, um, you know, not, uh, is he handling the situation or the crisis the correct way where we're seeing that, uh, you know, the protests are um, getting worse. Uh, They've been to Santon already and, uh, uh, you know, with the no response or um, the non-response non of uh, the executive mayor, do you not think that this may escalate? Is it not a better idea for the mayor to meet with the people of Alexandra and then at a later date meet with the people of Alexandra together with the president and uh, the uh, premier of the province? Very, very valid question. Um, because you must remember in this pre-election, election phase, all politicians are looking at ways and means of how to handle or manage difficult situations or how to get benefits out of it. And then very often, um, a place like Alexandra um, may uh, pose a political challenge because um, let's just assume the ANC uh, is a little bit better respond, um, uh, represented in Alexandra than the DA. So Mashaba will be careful not to go too deep into this issue, but there are other ways and means to deal with it, and I think you mentioned one already, and that is go there, get a committee, a steering committee, or a, a whatever committee from the community, meet with them, and set up, a more extended meeting after the election, then at least those people have had a hearing. They, they heard something. Uh, a bureaucrat wasn't sent to sign the documents like they did yesterday or the day before. Um, they want to see the politicians. Now, the interesting part of it is that politicians don't implement. It's the officials that implement. And so the better guy to actually see in a case like this, if you really want changes, is to talk to the officials because they are going to do the work, not the politicians. But this is a political campaign, therefore it's all political. But I do think there are ways and means to deal with this. I don't think Ramaphosa and Makura and Mashaba will share a platform not two, three weeks before a very crucial election. I don't think that's practical politics. Now, this is obviously, um, you know, a clever timing for the people of Alexandra. But with the, just about a month to go um, before the elections on May the 8th, this kind of crisis for the DA or the ANC, this is not good. No, this is not good at all. Um, and this is making this election so difficult to predict. Um, I mean, there are three or four things that you don't want before an election. You don't want fuel prices to go up the way they do. You don't want the bread price to rise. You don't want ESCOM to have load shedding. And lastly, you don't want unhappy communities because these unhappy communities translate into either votes for you or against you. You don't want that. And therefore, uh, I also um, of the opinion that you need to send in smart guys to get a resolution of some kind, at least to get the temperature down so as to deal with it after the election. 
Thea, always a pleasure chatting to you. And this is definitely a developing story. Um, you know, with just about uh, a month to go before elections and uh, this crisis, which has been happening across the country in different uh, places. So it is a developing story that we'll all be watching very closely. Thank you for joining us. And, and, and luckily, luckily for us, mm-hmm. when the votes come out, we will know which stations are in Alexandra and one may just check the votes and see has this actually impacted because I do think it will. Mm, definitely. Theo, always a pleasure. Okay. That's Theo Fenter, South African political analyst with the University of the Northwest, joining us on the line. It is 8.32 Central African time and our headlines up next with Nosile Zuma. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Sudanese security forces fired tear gas at thousands of anti-government protesters demonstrating outside the army headquarters in Khartoum. UN condemns an airstrike that closed the only functioning airport in Libya's capital, Tripoli. And Eritrea issues a security alert to its citizen in Sudan in the wake of mounting anti-government protest in the heart of the capital, Khartoum. Amanda Machaka will give you a full bulletin at the top of the hour. It's 8.33 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now more than 175 million children globally not enrolled in pre-primary education. This is revealed in a new report by the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF. According to the report, the picture is much bleaker in low-income areas, with only one in five children enrolled in pre-primary education. For more on the findings of the report, we are now joined on the line by UNICEF Eastern and Southern Africa Regional Chief of Communication, James Elder. Good morning, James, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Hello, James. Good morning, James. This is uh, Channel Africa. Are you there? We seem to have lost that connection. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
The United Kingdom's envoy to the United Nations says she does not believe the resolution that created a no-fly zone in Libya in 2011 was a mistake. Ambassador Karen Pierce sat down exclusively with SABC News in New York to discuss her recent participation at a seminar hosted by the Department of International Relations in Pretoria. But the conversation later turned to developments in Libya where a rebel commander in the country's east is heading an offensive attack against the internationally recognized government in the capital Tripoli, leading to fears of a return to a full-blown conflict just days ahead of a UN-brokered peace conference on April the 14th. Sean Bryce Peace reports. Ambassador Pierce has returned to New York after a whirlwind visit to South Africa last week where she addressed a Derco seminar on the relevance of the Security Council in the current global climate. The most important thing to remember about the Security Council Uh, is that although people resent the veto to a certain extent, although the veto stops us making progress on issues like Syria, it is nevertheless uh, the price of the UN Security Council and the UN continuing in existence. I think the way round that, as it were, is to make sure that where some issues uh, can be dealt with in the Security Council, and I'd say Yemen uh, has been a good example of Security Council unity, uh, that we maximise that unity to the full. We pressed her on whether the veto was not simply and fundamentally unfair. I don't think it's fundamentally unfair in the sense of it was the price of the permanent five members agreeing to the Security Council and the UN back in 1945. Uh, Do we think there should be uh, self-imposed Uh, restraint on use of the veto. Uh, Yes, we as the United Kingdom do. Uh, We have signed up to the General Assembly Act uh, initiative and there's also the French initiative uh, on not using the veto in cases of genocide. Um, It's quite interesting that most of the time the veto is used, uh, it is used by countries not in their direct national security interest uh, but often to protect wider strategic interests. Uh, as you have seen uh, with the U.S. and Israel relationship, as we see now, uh, something like 12 vetoes since 2018 uh, on the Russians protecting uh, President Assad in Syria. London's envoy indicated that the two countries would work closely on issues of women, peace and security and women's mediation as a growing pillar of post-conflict resolution and peacebuilding. We asked Ambassador Pierce about her observations of South Africa's first four months in the Council. Although South Africa and Britain sometimes come at issues from a different perspective, uh, the one thing we have in common is that we both care very deeply about multilateralism and we both care about doing what we can to support the rules-based international system, which on the whole has kept the world safe and prosperous since 1945. Uh, So it's about finding ways we can cooperate within that framework and bearing in mind we have the same goal, we sometimes have different routes towards it. Turning to Libya, the UN has called for a humanitarian pause to the fighting as clashes between a renegade commander, General Khalifa Haftar, and militias loyal to Libya's internationally recognized government threatened to return the country to a full-blown conflict. I'm looking at this second or third hand, uh, as it were, uh, in my experience, which might be wrong in this case, but in my experience, when military people make these decisions, they make them because they see an opportunity. uh, And they 
set aside the diplomatic track uh, for, for that moment. I can't say if that's what's happened with General Haftar. Uh, it might be. Uh, I think it's important that the Security Council back the Secretary General. A UN-brokered national conference is due to start on April 14th and for now appears to be moving ahead, but will depend largely on General Haftar's next move. While these developments have again raised questions about the international community's role in the North African country, I asked Ambassador Pierce if Resolution 1973 of 2011 that created the now infamous no-fly zone in Libya was a mistake. No, I don't think that resolution was a, was a mistake because, as I say, it was a response to a particular set of circumstances around an imminent humanitarian catastrophe. There are always lessons to be learned from each conflict and each intervention, whether they ultimately end as expected or, or not. I think the point to make about 2011 in Libya is that the intervention was done with the uh, most altruistic of, of motives. It was to prevent an overwhelming uh, humanitarian catastrophe developing around Benghazi. Now, clearly, uh, that did not later pan out uh, as expected or even as foreseen. So, obviously, uh, we have to learn uh, a lot from the way things developed and our own inability uh, to forecast what might happen uh, and put in place measures that might enable us to deal with that uh, effectively. So yes, we have to learn lessons from these things. But the point I would like to stress is that standing by and doing nothing uh, in the face of an overwhelming humanitarian catastrophe is not a good option either. And as clashes rage near the capital Tripoli, conversations continue on how best the Security Council might assist the Secretary General's attempt to secure a temporary ceasefire in Libya. I'm Sherman Bryce-Pease. In New York. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi and Chief Minister of West Bengal Mamata Banerjee got into a war of words again on Sunday as they address rallies ahead of the first phase of Lok Sabha polls on April the 11th. Rana Sen has more from New Delhi. West Bengal Chief Minister Mamata Banerjee, called Didi or Big Sister, is rallying the opposition to forge an alliance to beat Modi. And Modi has set about trying to discredit Banerjee but has found the five-foot-tall dynamo was no pushover. The duel touched a crescendo on Monday. Didi's aide Shukhendu Roy advised Modi and his right-wing BJP party to stop daydreaming of winning even one of Bengal's 42 parliamentary seats. What the Honourable Prime Minister has said today, attributing Monta Banerjee as a speed breaker, he is partially correct in one sense because Monta Banerjee is all along fighting against the anti-people policies of the BJP government and the politics of hatred being perpetuated by BJP, that way she is definitely speed breaker. In 2011, Didi demolished the world's last democratically elected communist regime. Modi spokesman Bhaskar Ghosh said the 64-year-old Banerjee lived by the sword to stay in power. State-sponsored terrorism, the state-sponsored violence has given a, the biggest speed breaker of Bengal is those violence which are sponsored by the ruling party. And apart from that, the state machinery 
like police and other machinery is working as their collateral forces in order to speed break the growth at which Bengal could, could have been at par with the other state where we are ruling for almost 20 states we are ruling. But it is a do or die battle for Modi to make inroads in a state because he fears losses in his northern heartland in the upcoming election which starts on Thursday, said political analyst Arti Jairat. When uh, demonetization happened, she was the first off the block to criticize it. The Congress and all were much more muted in their criticism and it's only later that they followed suit. So she is definitely, you know, over the, over the last three years has become the PM's fiercest opponent and the fiercest critic. And I think that's also partly, apart from maybe ideological differences, it's also that she's fearing because she's seeing the rise of the BJP in Bengal. Mamta Banerjee has three sets of clothes. She still lives in a ramshackle tenement and often survives on street food. Didi fears none, least of all Prime Minister Narendra Modi or his BJP party. For Newsbreak, this is Rana Sen reporting from New Delhi. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoku. Good morning. South Africa's power utility says cold and wet weather conditions could drive up the demand for electricity, increasing the risk of load shedding. Eskom wants the load shedding, warns rather that load shedding may be a possibility this week, according to its winter plan. Last week, Public Enterprise Minister Pravin Gordon announced that Eskom aims to have no load shedding, or at most 26 days of stage one load shedding until the end of August. Stage 4 load shedding was implemented last month, but the grid has now been stabilized. ESCOM has requested for South Africans to use electricity sparingly this week. Meanwhile, the World Bank says last month's load shedding is expected to weigh down on South Africa's growth outlook in the short term. The bank's latest report also indicates that Africa or South Africa, rather, is lagging behind the rest of sub-Saharan Africa, growing at 1.3%, while the region is growing at 2.3%. The report shows that Nigeria, Angola, and South Africa, which make 60% of sub-Saharan Africa's economy, are facing challenges, which have negatively impacted their contribution to the region. Senior economist at the World Bank, Gerard Gambo, says load shedding will affect South Africa's growth outlook. And of course, the load shedding is a, is, a, is a very important factor because we have only seen the, the impact of the load shedding in the first quarter of 2019. As I mentioned, you have manufacturing production struggling, you have uh, uh, money production uh, struggling, and, and, and that is going to, uh, to weigh on, uh, on, 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 the, on the outlook in the near term for South Africa. According to the April issue of Africa's Pulse, the World Bank's biannual analysis of the state of African economies indicates that growth in sub-Saharan Africa has been downgraded to 2.3% for 2018, down from 2.5% in 2017. 
economic growth remains below population growth for the fourth consecutive year. Although regional growth is bound to rebound to 2.8% in 2019 and will have remained below 3% since 2015. The issue of Africa's pulse also reviewed the fragility holding back sub-Saharan Africa and how the digital economy can help the continent move forward. Namibia's rise in debt is hampering capital projects funding. The African Development Bank said this in its Southern Africa Economic Report for 2019. It says that these capital projects would underpin the country's long-term growth path. Higher commodity prices will benefit several mineral-rich countries such as Namibia, Zambia and Zimbabwe. Botswana might have recorded surplus budgets in the previous years, but that is the deficient in the share of the money dedicated to research and development. While junior minister at the research ministry, Fidelis Mulau, maintains there is no ideal percentage relative to the GDP of research and development budget for the economy, it has since emerged that the Southern African bloc, SADC, and African Union, of which Botswana is a member, have set the percentage at 1% of gross domestic product. The US dollar is trading at 358.63 Nigerian Naira. It's at uh, 10.42 Botswana Pula and at 99.98 Kenyan Shilling and at 12.1 Zambian Guaja. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you 3.86 Brazilian roll, 65.14 Russian ruble, 69.55 Indian rupee, 6.72 Chinese yuan and 14.11 to the South African rand. The US dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British pound. 88 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,299. Platinum, $902 pounds. The price of branch crude oil is at $71.17 a barrel. From an African perspective. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, we begin with uh, swimming news. South African swimming sensation Chad Leclaw. And Erin Gallagher posed FINA World Championships qualification times during the first day of the South Africa's National Aquatic Championships. The 2019 South African National Aquatic Championships and FINA World Championship trials got underway at the Kings Park Aquatic Center in Deben on Monday. Olympian Leclerc was in top form as he cruised to the gold medal in both the 200-meter butterfly and the 100-meter freestyle, clocking a FINA qualification time of 1 minute 56.21 seconds in the butterfly and a fast 49.75 in the freestyle, just 0.95 seconds under the 48.80 requirement. 
The silver and the bronze in the 200-meter butterfly were claimed by Ethan Debris in 1 minute 58.24 and Eben Foster in 1 minute 58.44 seconds, while Ryan Kutze and Zane Wardell took home the second and the third place in the 100-meter freestyle in 49.84 and 50.28 seconds, respectively. In the 100-meter freestyle, Galaga's quick start won her the gold medal in the final qualification time of 54.34 seconds ahead of Amy Kenny in 56.33 seconds and Ima Chilias in 56.43 seconds. While in the 800-meter freestyle, Kate Bevan walked away with a gold medal in 8 minutes, 59.38 seconds, followed by Christine Belligan and Amy Meda. Football great Pelé has been released from hospital in Paris and will return to Brazil in the coming hours. The 78-year-old's discharge came after Neymar paid him a visit in hospital in the suburbs of the French capital. The Paris Saint-Germain forward posted a photo on his Instagram account of himself alongside a smiling Pelé in his hospital bed with the two holding hands. The three-time World Cup winner was admitted to hospital with a urinary infection last Wednesday, the day after appearing at a promotional event with France striker Kylian Mbappe. English Premiership side Manchester City manager Pep Guardiola has urged Tottenham Hotspur fullback Danny Rose not to let racism win by following through on his plan to walk away from football when his playing career ends. England International Rose says that he could not wait to leave football because he had had enough of the racism in the game and was frustrated by the response of the authorities to the abuse. Rose was among several English players who were victims of offensive chanting in a Euro 2020 qualifier in Montenegro last month. Daniel Rose has not to do that. If I see him, I will tell him. So the best way to, to fight, combat this kind of, uh, of terrible situation is fighting, being there every day. So, and of course, because he's an extraordinary football player. Tottenham most powerful back Danny Rose's stand against racism received the backing of his manager, Mauricio Pochettino. Yeah, but that, when I was a player, it happened the same. Eh? The same situation that he is living now, living for a lot of teammates. When I was in Argentina, I was in France, or when I was in Spain. It's not a new, that is a big problem. The big issue that is not new, because it happened in the past. And it's a thing that, it's, it's true that now happened less, because we are all again, and we are fighting you know, I think people like Danny or Sterling, of course, we are very solidar with, with them, but they have the, the capacity or the power because they are famous people. That can... <clears throat> I told you in, my, in the past, in my press conference, that that is a thing that I hate, and is, I'm going to do everything to try to stop that all that is in my, in my hand. And finally, the testing of player combinations will be one of Junior Springboks coach Shin Ru's main goals for the Under-20 International Series, which kicks off against Georgia's Under-20s at Pal Gymnasium in Cape Town today. That's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at this hour. Russia accused of meddling in the electoral process in Madagascar. And South Africa's ruling ANC election candidate list could change. Our shortwave transmitter has been temporarily disabled. Stay tuned to Channel Africa on DSTV's Audio Bouquet Channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. We will inform you as soon as our shortwave broadcast is restored. Well, that wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzo Ramagadza and Tutu Ngobeni, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300327 or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Femi Koya with a song titled Babalao. Yeah, we're dancing,